We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And uh, welcome to episode 30 of Archaeoanimals, the show all about zoo archaeology. With you, as always, is uh, me, Simona Falanga, and my co host, Alex Fitzpatrick. Who has eaten today? I have. Maybe that's why I'm like really sleepy, because I, I ate. So this is just proof that I shouldn't eat before recording. <laughs> Okay, it'll be the, the food coma episode. Because um, <laughs> um, well, I guess sort of food related, as uh, is often the case with zoo archaeology. In this episode, we'll be talking about the hitchhikers. So the animals that we didn't really want to introduce places, but hey-ho, whoops, we did. It's kind of amazing because I feel like as we go further with this podcast, we we tend to have one type of podcast episode we seem to do over. So there's the domestication episodes, which we've done a bajillion on at this point. And we have this like invasive species type, exotic animal type episode that we've done a couple episodes about now. Yeah, because I mean, it is one of many. I can think of at least another two that we've covered. So non-native yeah. species being introduced for a variety of purposes. I mean, we've covered companionship. So um, how like some domesticates or exotic pets were brought through a variety of different countries to hunting, demonstration of status. Uh, there's, uh, I'm sure you'll remember from previous episodes, uh, the, the story of, say, like the fallow deer that's been introduced to Britain uh, for the Roman upper classes to hunt, because, I mean, there's plenty of deer here, but it's not this one deer we have in Italy, so we'll bring this one over. Or maybe the, you know, the first domesticated cats that were brought to Cyprus, as we've discussed in the cat episode for, like, the very famous human cat burial. It's not the more things change, the more things stay the same, as much as it's just... There's only so much <laughs> that really happens in animal histories... And the nice thing is that there there are some very unique differences here and there. But I guess overall, the grand history of zooarchaeology is animals moving to and fro. And then some of them get domesticated. That's it. We don't it have just, to do any more episodes of the show. It's just basically zooarchaeology, the art of humans just constantly messing up animals. Yeah, either, basically. Either we turn them into different animals, or we take them from one place and we bring it to another, sometimes because of valid reasons, more often than not, just because. But I think <laughs> in this episode, however, I think what we're really be going to be focusing on, as you may have gathered, is the accidental introduction of non-native species, many of which are now considered pests. I mean, that is not to say that um, many sort of thought out introductions didn't result in a species becoming invasive. <laughs> I mean, examples we've covered before, so like, you know, the, the great squirrel in the UK, which like the Victorians brought over, say, what could possibly go wrong? Oh yeah, whoops. Or another one, so the red fox that's been introduced to Australia for recreational hunting, which turned out to be invasive, much like, to be fair, any species that's ever been introduced to Australia ever. So... Yeah, no, that, that's zoo archaeology in a nutshell. Yeah, and I, I like the differentiation you make between invasive species that were kind of thought out before they were introduced to an environment, and then what this episode is going to be about, which is the accidental invasive species, the hitchhikers who we didn't mean to really bring over, just because I feel like it really kind of shows the... <laughs> this sounds very more like dramatic than I wanted to sound, but like the folly of man of, you know, 
we think that we have this utmost control over nature when actually, you know, we do stuff like this all the time. Uh, Things get uh, stuck in. <laughs> I, I was waiting for a life finds a way reference. Oh then yeah, I forgot. Oh gosh, uh, I ruined it. I'm so sorry. But I think even in the thought out introductions, I mean, that's why I stressed it a sort of, because I'm like, yeah, yeah, this all planned out. I'm going to introduce this species. I'm going to bring it over to this country. But like, um, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. That'd be great. It's like, oh, but what, what what's that going to do to the um, sort of the ecological, uh, the, the food chain and the ecological system of the area? What, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I think people don't, I, I think that's something that people don't even really think about, like, you see, I mean, I don't want to get into like a, a debate of like reintroductions because I definitely don't know enough about conservation to really add to that. But every so often I, I get stuff from friends who are like, oh, they should just, you know, put this animal in this place. And it's like, I mean, there's actually way more thought that needs to be put into it. Like, it's not just an animal just getting plopped into the middle of a field in England. There's so much things that will be affected and there's just like chain theory going on. It's interesting to think how that still continues onto this day, uh, that it just never changes. You know what there isn't enough of in Britain? Armadillos. Let's just bring a load of armadillos. I mean, I was talking to um, some people the other day about raccoons and I was talking about my experiences having grown up in a place where raccoons exist and I mean, you know, we could bring raccoons over here, right? But I think there are raccoons over here. But oh, is this going to be another be... squirrel thing? No, so th- I think it might be like privately owned. I don't know what the legalities are around that, but it, it, I did read in the news years ago that a, a couple sort of were woken up overnight in England. So they thought <laughs> someone was going bur- to was burgling the, was their house and were broken in. Yeah. But then they find a raccoon in their living room. Because I was say, like, y'all haven't lived until you're walking home uh, after going out with your friends and getting so scared because a raccoon jumps out of the nearest bin. It's just, you know, it's an experience. And raccoons are cute, though. They're incredibly cute. And I like that they were, like, very tactile hands. So, like, oh, they, they grabby hands. with their hands. That's the technical term. It's called grabby hands. At least that's that, what that, I write. That, that, that just sounds odd. Grabby hands. They've got little hands so they can grab food. But I guess uh, backtracking an awful lot all the way back. So, like, because we've been mentioning invasive species back and forth a fair few times. So, yeah, we should probably uh, explain it. What is an invasive species? (laughs) I mean, more specifically. So, I guess in general, a species is considered invasive when it predates on native species in a way that significantly lowers their numbers. So one good example for the UK is the harlequin ladybird, which you all may have seen. The issue with identifying those is that they can have a variety of colours and they can have a variety of number of spots and such. So they just, well, hence the name harlequin. But these guys predate on the larvae of native ones and also compete with them for resources, which takes us to our second point, which is uh, a species can also become invasive if it competes with native ones for resources. So the the gray squirrels, again, come to mind, but also includes, uh, like, you know, among the species they compete with, you know, that can also include humans. So say black rats, spoilers, also in a way compete with humans for food. Another case is um, if the species carries disease, which can infect the native species. So an example for that, for the US, is feral pigs. Now, would you say that these were feral hogs? (laughs) Like 50 to 70 feral hogs? I mean, I hope not, because um, they can spread diseases such as brucellosis to other species, including livestock and humans. So hopefully not. I was braced. I saw that one coming. That meme is going to be so out of date by the time people listen to this episode. They'll be like, what is she talking about? Well, if anything, it can get its own episode because it'll be archaeology by the time we I get around to I was just going to say that. And the last point is if uh, the introduction of a species leads to hybridization with a native one. The example I thought of for that, I mean, it's not quite an invasive species, but sort of, depending on which angle you look at it from, domestic cats. 
Because, for instance, mm-hmm. one of the main threats to the European wildcat, so uh, Felis silvestris, is hybridization with domestic cats. Yeah, no, I think that that would technically count as invasive species. I mean, I guess it's that question of do you consider the you know movement of uh, any of the ultimately domesticated species across you know Europe technically invasive? I guess. <laughs> I mean, I guess if if any of those points sort of in a way could say, oh, then sheep are an invasive species, but I guess they haven't really got, aside from deer, really, there isn't really any species they could possibly compete with. There is an extinct species out there that is so mad at us because to them, they are definitely an invasive species. And I want to apologize to those extinct species. (laughs) I don't know how you deal with me, Simona, sometimes. That's all right. It's a really quiet... Yeah, I've got another can't Alex be as at bad home. As me. Yeah, I'm just gonna say it can't be as bad as me. No, no, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, especially um, <laughs> after a whole episode with Tristan, all about yeah. Mass Effect. So if you have not listened to it yet, please do. Yeah, yeah I never ask. Before it becomes completely and utterly outdated, which by the sounds of things, it might. <laughs> but yeah, so all these um, species that accidentally get places, how did they get here? It's called economics, baby. <laughs> it's trade. Yes. Yeah, more often than not, is a result of trade, particularly maritime transport. Uh, animals uh, have a way of just finding their way <laughs> <laughs> onto goods uh, that are being uh, that were being shipped around. But not only that, because I mean, um, you have a number sort of like of species that got, got released into the wild. Uh, say, like animals that have escaped from meat or fur farms. Mm. Well, things like the accidental reintroduction of the wild boar in Britain. Yeah, Because pretty much just literally wild boar being kept for meat that sort of escaped, and now we have wild boar. But that's sort of okay, because wild boars were here before. Yeah. So it's technically an introduction, but also not really, because wild boars were here before. Yeah. I feel like we had this discussion in the last episode we talked about this in like, when does it become an introduction? Or when, yeah, when, when does a species start to be considered native? Because I think we discussed yeah. it with sheep or how like many people will think that sheep are native to, well, most countries really, because they've been there for so many thousand years that for all intents yeah. and purposes, they might as well be. But then if you want to get finicky about it, well, no, well, actually... <laughs> Well, you know, there's someone out there who's saying it out loud to our podcast where we can't hear it. Can almost and hear it's me. Like an echo. Well, actually. Well, actually. That should be, we should have a soundboard and then put a well, actually into it. Well, actually. No, this, no, this encourages him. So never mind. <laughs> well, here, I'll record it on the soundboard and you can press the button. And then no, you- that encourages you to speak and we don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there is there a cutoff point, or is it kind of a case by case basis? I think it's relative, really. It's like you could technically argue either way. I feel like you know, I'm sure. Like the the um, there is a cutoff point of a certain amount of time where a species, well, more than native, is considered naturalized. Mm, true. Yeah. So in a way, like uh, rabbits are naturalized. Uh, same with sheep and. Which some is a bit weirder, like the fallow deer, because like we've discussed before that it was indeed here in the Pleistocene and then it disappeared and mm-hmm. then it was brought back. So then do you consider that native because it was here during the Pleistocene or because it went extinct for so long? Yeah. And then it was reintroduced because really the population we have now mostly descend from what the Normans introduced. So then would you still class them as, I don't know, it's, it's for more intelligent people, I think. Yeah, and I and it seems like that would take time to like suss out, and I don't yeah. want to do that. <laughs> Let us know by leaving a comment, like hashtag. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, send them to Tristan. <laughs> but I think no one point that I really want to hammer home for this because I think you, you'll see that as the episode develops, especially in our case studies, mm-hmm. that all of this that we've this we've, we've discussed and we're going to be discussing is as true now as it was in antiquity. Yep. <laughs> because we Again. never change. Yep. More things change, more things stay the same, for sure. Especially when we're discussing how these species got here as well. Trade is definitely going to be the big culprit <laughs> across the board. Thought up plans and human whimsy. Tru- truly, you know, 
the folly of man like i said before that should have been the episode name like i i, I appreciate a good jurassic park reference but you should have made it serious the folly of man. <laughs> have you listened to this show that is true that is Mm, yeah. But more about that on our next segment. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code ANIMALS. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back talking about the hitchhikers, the invasive species that we accidentally brought over to other places here on Archaeo Animals. And I believe we're going to start talking about some more specifics. But first, probably, how do we actually identify the non-native and invasive species in the archaeological record? This is probably going to sound a lot like our other conversations. Yeah, because I mean, in terms of well, identifying them, I think, again, context is everything. So because you're, you're going to be a lot more likely to find certain sort of uh, accidentally introduced species uh, in certain contexts over others. Mm-hmm. For example, like, very ob- might sound obvious, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we're more likely to encounter them, uh, the encounter those species that have adapted to obtain shelter and food within human settlements, which are known as commensal species. And of course, for the most part, if it's something that's been accidentally brought over, they are likely to just stick around human settlements. Of course, it'll be easier to sort of pinpoint them in which locations they may have spread to, because um, they're also likely to have been documented in the written record. Because if it's a, a pest that may compete with humans for food, and not necessarily compete, but say, uh, trash and eat through their supplies, they're bound to have been whining about it somewhere Pliny, yeah. I'm looking right at you. Listen, like, complaining is so monumentally important to the history of humankind. As someone who is still a practitioner of uh, complaining all the time, I can definitely attest to that. Yeah. And I feel like now there should be like a little jingle or something coming, not only whenever I mention the Romans, but also whenever I mention Pliny the Elder specifically. We're calling you out, Pliny. That's right. <laughs> He's very hurt right now. We know you're listening. <laughs> but yeah, because I mean, th- there might be other accidental introductions of species that are not necessarily commensal. Mm-hmm. Those, I mean, you could potentially still find them sort of in, if you carry out a paleoenvironmental analysis. So of course your best bet would be sort of soil samples and then just yeah. uh, sieving is your friend. Yeah, and- I noticed that you wrote this this huge lie in the notes for the podcast where you wrote sieving is your friend. When all archaeologists know that sieving is the devil. Well, because uh, you, you, thanks to sieving, you get the fish bones you like so much. Listen, don't call me out on my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think sieving is probably your best bet, at least for the smaller critters anyway. anyway. And um, the smaller the mesh, the smaller <laughs> the critters that you'll be able to find. However, because one big issue that, again, I think it's mentioned every single episode, is that lovely friend called 
bioturbation. <laughs> so known as just be a modern or post-medieval animal burrowing, which of course may make context not as secure. And you might be able to find, I don't know, the remains of a black rat, spoilers, in a Neolithic context. <laughs> and you get really confused at how a black rat got there. And then it's like, oh, that is um, post-medieval. Okay. How, you mean something that literally happened during my, my uh, thesis writing up? <laughs> but in a way, that is accidental in its own way. It was an accidental introduction into a Neolithic context. I am going to go back in time and I'm going to find that rat. And I'm going to throw it as, fast, as hard as I can out of the cave because it has brought me so much strife in doing my PhD, let me tell you. <laughs> Oh, like, this is so exciting. You can change archaeology as we know it. And then you send it for C14. It's like, oh, oh. <sighs> Don't get <laughs> started. That'll be another episode. <laughs> all all <laughs> of the animals that have wronged Alex. Oh, that'll be too long a list. That'll be a, a, a podcast in its own right, not an episode. Mm, that's true. But I guess I will, I will be less mean to the humble black rat. Uh, shout out to David Orton who is the rat guy on Twitter. He does rat stuff. That's, that was, that's all. Yes, that, so I figured. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well. Let's talk about Rattus Rattus. Yeah, not to be confused with the brown rat, which did make it to Britain until the 18th century. Also known as the Norwegian rat, even though it isn't really Norwegian. Ugh. So, spoilers, more on that on a different episode. <laughs> the hitchhikers of much, much, much later on. I think with the black rat, it's a—it's all a very similar story to the fallow deer, really, because yeah. we find uh, the first evidence for black rat is at the start of uh, guess what? The Romano-British period, with the population <laughs> and the population then declines in the post-Roman period, and then it gets sort of re-established in the late Saxon, early medieval period. So a lot of what I looked up for this is the research has been carried out by Riley, who's collected yep. like a huge data set, uh, data sets of rat remains found in both published work and great literature. So, so it's a nice bit of work, sort of tracking the appearance and disappearance and spread of the black rat in Britain. So we know now that one of the earliest fragments identified to the species came from a site in London, again, early Romano-British date. So mm-hmm. 168 Fenchurch, Fenchurch Street. And interestingly enough, but maybe not really. So, <laughs> well, no, just because of how, like, yeah, I kind of saw that coming sort of thing. But within the same building where the bone fragment was recovered were a variety of grains, some of which originate from Southern Europe such as einkorn, bitter vetch seed, thus suggesting that, of course, these grains had been imported into Britain with rats potentially following suit during maritime transport. There's a trade. I mean, interesting, <laughs> but not really, because it's unsurprisingly uh, probably made their way here on a ship, and now there's rats. Oh, no. Oh, whoops. Who would have thought that coming? Well, then remains of black rat are found henceforth, both on urban and rural side, sort of pretty much across Britain. I think a little bit less so in Wales and Scotland, but not 100% sure on that. Yeah. But of course, what's interesting about it is because it's the dwindling of numbers in the post-Roman period. Again, you see that in the fallow deer as well, but of course, because they were kept in deer hunting parks with the sort of the Roman upper classes hunting them, they wouldn't have been, uh, by the time they left, enough of a viable population for them to sort of sustain themselves. You'd mm-hmm. think rats being, well, rats doing rat things, they would have been <laughs> sort of okay. But their numbers do actually fall quite dramatically until sort of the late Saxon period. And Kevin Riley does have a, a few suggestions on why that may be the case. I think that they're very sound. So I think one of the main ones is the dismantling of Roman infrastructure and settlements. Mm-hmm. which, of course, them being primarily commensal species, of course, if the settlements get dismantled, well, not as many people about. Yeah. Uh, so it's not going to be as easy for them to get hold of the food and sustenance that they need. But another one comes from the paleoenvironmental evidence for the time period, which shows a sort of the post-Roman period coincides with a slightly colder and wetter climate. Yeah. Which may also have contributed to sort of the lowering of the numbers. And I think... A final one, I think, may not necessarily apply to 
maybe Britain so much per se, but it's definitely the case for sort of Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. is that again, like around that time, so like between AD 541 and 42, there was a plague. <laughs> wow, that hits different these days, huh? <laughs> How topical. But the plague, because the rats himself had been infected with the disease that may have mm-hmm. led to the rats also dying off in large numbers. So then you have, again, these numbers sort of falling quite dramatically. And as I said, it wasn't really until the late Saxon period that rats sort of make a comeback and become more white, like they will become quite widespread sort of like by the 14th century, by which time plague again. But yeah, I feel like one interesting factor I didn't know about black rats myself is that they're actually extremely rare in the UK now. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah, no, pest control happened. So actually, no, no, not many black rats around at all. So they're largely confined to ports and coastal towns now. Huh. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> not really. But yeah, so of course, maybe like maybe not the black rat specifically, but rats in general is something that we do indeed struggle to with to this day because they like chewing through our food. Uh, much mm-hmm. like our, our second example, that is also a, a, a much, much smaller critter that also loves chewing through your food. Is this one of, have we done one, a, a non, not non-animal, but you know what I mean. An invertebrate. Um, yes. Invertebrate animals too. Pretty sure I said the same thing sort of verbatim last time round. I think it might even be the very same species that I think we brought up sort of very quickly, I think in one of the case studies in the introduced species, actually. Mm, okay. But I thought, like, you know, who doesn't want to hear a bit more about <laughs> grain weevils? Because maybe people listen to the first episode and say, God, God, I wish I knew more about the humble we grain got, weevil. They're, they're telling me we need to have more of the grain weevil. I'm getting tweets. I'm getting messages every single day saying, when are they going to talk about the grain weevil again? Hashtag, what about the grain weevil? <laughs> Hashtag, give me that grain. <laughs> Nom nom grain. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, you may have guessed, sorry, in more generic terms, uh, our second example for our voluntary introductions are grain pests. Do you see, um, grain production and consumption was at the heart of our shift from undergatherer societies to farming. I mean, what really uh, made farming so great is that, of course, you could store on your surplus for months and months at a time, and it would be sort of keep you covered during the leaner months. Slight flaw in that plan. <laughs> so of course, with storing your grain, there's a problem that becomes so very apparent that critters, small and very small, <laughs> will <laughs> adapt to chewing through the ex- very same food that you're trying to produce. And that is the case of the lovely, humble grain weevil, Citophilus granarius. And what the grain weevil really <laughs> likes to do... <laughs> I like that you pronounced it like it was a, a Roman senator. Was he not? <laughs> Simona, I have something to tell you about scientific names. Have you been thinking all these scientific names like Roman senators this whole time? If Caligula could make his own horse a senator, and I'm sure fair. someone else could make a grain weevil a senator. <laughs> grain weevils can be senators too. That's another hashtag. I'm on a roll today. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, so what Mr. Citophilus Granarius really likes to do in, uh, well, not really just his spare time, every waking hour. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the whole point, I believe. <laughs> but you know, what he really likes to do is to drill a hole in the centre of your grain seed and then he, it lays its eggs in it. Yummy. Yes. So the resulting maggots will be feasting on the grain until maturity. So you don't have to. But can, of course, can you say his name again, please? Citophilus Granarius. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Can we clip um, that? Somebody clip that. Put it up. I, I want that on a signboard. You're the producer. You clip it. Oh, wow! Yeah, <laughs> Whoa! Um, <laughs> but yes. So, out of all species, so why, why the grain weevil? But of course, the first because we want we wanted uh, Simona to say that name. That's why we chose this one. The second one also being. Why not? The third one is that, well, specifically when it comes to an, a non-native invasive species that uh, competes with, uh, well, in this case, us for food, mm-hmm. is that the, the little grain weevil 
is a well like many insects to be fair is incredibly specialized in this particular case he's adapted to a very specific climate that's usually found in the eastern mediterranean so definitely not native to britain <laughs> and definitely would not be able to survive outside of a human settlement so like he had he clearly just adapted so he could survive in britain around humans indoors where it's nice and super cozy drilling holes in your grain while you're trying to sleep I mean, not that I think they're particularly loud while they do that. I mean, listen, if you're cold, they're cold. Let them in. Don't let them in. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So unsurprisingly, the green weevil, much like the black rat, likely landed in Britain thanks to the Romans, one, uh, within shipments of grain coming from the Mediterranean. In fact, of course, their numbers really start going up in the Roman period, and again, interestingly enough, but also, I guess, not really uh, <laughs> obvious enough, much like the black rat, the grain weevil's numbers also starts dwindling in the post-Roman period, which again may also be due to dismantlement of Roman infrastructure and mm-hmm. colder climate, which the, the grain weevil, I mean, the good old Citophilus granarius, he would have not have enjoyed that in the very slightest. He's an um, extrovert. <laughs> Well, like, you know, he likes to be cosy. I get it. I, I love yeah, being cosy. Yeah, big mood. Big mood. I'd live in my pyjamas if I could. I mean, I'm sure grain weevils would live in pyjamas if they had pyjamas. <laughs> and again, similarly to the black rat, their numbers start rising again. Well, in this particular case, after the Norman conquest. So again, you start getting it more, even more concentrated sort of urban settlement where you could start, you could start thriving again, drilling holes into your food. And I think that's a great place to stop for now. And then we will take a break and we will come back to everyone's favorite. Although we've kind of been doing case studies already, but you'll see. We're doing something a little different with the case studies this time. Ooh. Man's women twist. Ooh. (laughs) Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. we are back we are doing everyone's favorite part of the show the case studies But this one's a little bit different because we're actually going to be talking about modern examples of these kind of hitchhikers. Just to kind of really nail down the the overarching theme of our podcast, which is nothing changes. Everything is the same all the time. (laughs) So uh, I think we're going to specifically do two very modern examples of kind of accidental introductions. And yeah, Oddly enough, both are uh, aquatic, almost like it has something to do with trade. Shift. Who would have thought? (laughs) The plot thickens. So our first example, I actually don't even, I I guess I shouldn't say I actually don't know how to say it is because that's kind of what happens every week because I don't know how to pronounce things. Quagga? The quagga muscle? Maybe. That's what I would have gone with. Yeah. Anyway, so we have the quagga muscle, uh, which is actually uh, found usually just discussed alongside zebra mussels or zebra mussels, if you're that person. Um, Well, actually. (laughs) Well, actually. Well, you know what? I am a transcontinental person who does not pronounce things the way you want me to. And by God, I will continue to be that annoying person. But yes. They're often discussed alongside zebra mussels, as they're both invasive species native to Eastern Europe. Although the quagga mussel is 
apparently more domineering in being invasive because it is more adaptable to colder environments and can live in greater depths underwater. Uh, so the quagga mussels are specifically from uh, the Ukraine, and they've actually been found in the U.S. since 1989, uh, specifically in the Great Lakes, with additional populations found in Nevada in 2007 and California in 2008. So that's clearly a, a very long trip between the Ukraine to Nevada and California and the Great Lakes. As the cases for many of these invasive species, they breed really prolifically. And as we said before, very adaptable to various environments. So it's just the perfect uh, organism to become an invasive species. And they're not only extremely harmful to the local ecology, where they obviously kill off all the local freshwater mussels, but they actually damage human-made infrastructure as well. So any pipes, uh, sewage systems, things like that, will often become really damaged because of the quagga mussel. And apparently, I don't know why this is funny, it's not, but they're associated with avian botulism. So... Okay. They were like, hold my beer, I can be even more harmful. And then apparently are just giving avian botulism to everyone. Well, to birds. I guess. But one of the things I actually found really interesting about uh, the, the quagga mussel, because, you know, we chose these modern examples to just kind of show off, hey, everything is the same. We still continue to make these mistakes, even, you know, thousands of years later. But there's actually an archaeological component as well, because they apparently are a huge danger to preservation efforts for shipwrecks and marine archaeology. One of the examples being in uh, Lake, Lake Ontario, there are two merchant ships who were originally uh, enlisted in the War of 1812 uh, and were sunk in 1813, the Hamilton and the Scourge. And they are just absolutely covered in quagga mussels, which really ruins the remaining woodwork. So they're really just trying to annoy all of us, which I feel like is impressive as a person who's extremely annoying, you know? So I guess it's sort of like well, bioturbation, if you will. <laughs> Just like, am I going to go into the shipwreck now? He's like, oh, wait, this, this, this uh, shipwreck from 1813, it has quagga mussels in it. I mean, actually, that's a really good point because <laughs> it kind of is. I mean, I, like, I don't do underwater archaeology because I'm scared of drowning, but I guess it, it, it would be, like, the the aquatic variation of that. Just having, hmm. But then aside from destroying, because I don't know how stratigraphy would work in an underwater context. Um. I think it's all a mess. I don't, like, I've seen... <laughs> What? Because you don't Maybe really have stratigraphy sad. per se. There's like, oh, I'm in the ocean. Oh, look, there's a big pot. <laughs> um, um, and just send an email to Tristan. Hashtag, well, actually. I know a few people from my undergrad who have gone on to do underwater archaeology. And yeah, it's really interesting to see the things that I guess we would be like, oh, that's so unfair. You're able to, you know, like you said, stratigraphy is not necessarily a huge issue, but they got to put like suits on and stuff to get, just to get to, you know, that pot. It is cool but though. I love Isn't that, yeah, that's the bonus, isn't it? Like they get to put suits on to go and, you know, go mm, underwater. No, that's, that's scary. Cool. I, and no. <laughs> Like, I don't like, I've tried scuba diving once when I was really young and I get kind of claustrophobic. Um, mm -hmm. So I did, and I had like childhood asthma, kind of asthma and it really just didn't work for me. But it doesn't mean I don't envy it. Like, it's really cool. I just, I'd love to go. I don't know. The only thing is like a storm would like mess your sight up. You know, like the water column, just like shifting about, mm, like yeah. ruin all like the work that you've done. Oh, so you know? I go, look, the, the pot is uh, two kilometers that way now. <laughs> what, 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 can you do, do you do like uh, wet sieving underwater? 
like well it's all sitting sweat underwater but like i wonder if you like sieve like you do you know can you still get fish bones underwater that's what i'm saying alex I mean, I guess the water will still keep, like, because the, uh, the, the soil you're sieving will still want to go towards the bottom. You still have that gravity there. So I presume you could. I don't know. Do, do you wet sieve in the sea? Uh, or that, uh, at that stage, is it just sieving? Because every, everything <laughs> is wet. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like this is King Canute, you know, like uh, ordering his soldiers to like, <laughs> like cut the sea open with their swords, you know? Or, or is like it... Is a bit, yeah. Or are you sieving or like you're sieving? Okay, okay, right, um, Alex, please rescue this podcast. Because <laughs> Simone has got too big for her boots. Oh. <laughs> She's at my level of comedy at the moment. I, 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 I take offence to that. <laughs> I am just sitting here. But yeah, no, I, it's interesting to see something that is ultimately a, oh, sieving. You have see a joke that you have to type out <laughs> that you're trying wait, wait, to wait. make. You did not get. Did, did, did no, not I didn't. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No, no. I, I, I got it. It was just bad. Okay. Oh, I didn't bad. get it, which makes it worse. <laughs> oh God! Right. Well. Oof. Like. Right. Oof. Simona, just don't be salty about it. Okay. No, turn off the podcast, pull the plug. <laughs> and actually, no, I, I, sh- I, sh- I should be thanking you because I was feeling pretty bad about myself and I just stopped it, so it's okay now. <laughs> so thank you for rescuing me. It's like bad jokes and bad humor and invasive species in the ecology of podcasting. I can't tell if Tristan's crying or laughing. It could be both. It could be two things, I guess. I'm like a fellow. I'm like the fellow deer of the podcast. I just come here unannounced and just like make a mess of the place. We should uh, get rid of. Him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. No, please don't. <laughs> you know who would be really good at clearing the place? The killer, killer shrimp. shrimp, which is. The when you like mentioned this as an example for the case studies, I was like, that can't be the name of the shrimp. And I mean, it's not the scientific name, but it is the name of not only is it the name of the shrimp, but it's also not even a shrimp. So I feel really lied to. It's it's a crustacean. But I mean, I'm not going to look at like a coconut crab and go, that's a shrimp. But to be fair, like its Roman senator name is Tigerocamarus villosus. See, I didn't even put that in the notes because I was not going to say that. <laughs> I do like this new thing, though, just pronouncing all the uh, scientific names like that. It's not a scientific name. It's, it's their Roman senator name. <laughs> uh, sorry. Yes, of course. The, the Roman senator name. We should get like little like horns to play. Like, you know, the announcement horns. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it is, it is a crustacean uh, known as an amphipod. But, I mean, killer shrimp is a cooler name. And I guess it comes from a similar region <laughs> to the Praga mussel, because it originated in the Black Caspian Sea, but travel through waterways such as the Danube and the Rhine, off into Central and Western Europe it went, and uh, then everywhere else from there because it, it's found in the UK it's found in America it, it, it's out there it's going to conquer everything yeah it's got some real powerful jaws I read a article about it and the phrase that they used was indiscriminately killing <laughs> <laughs> so it's not even just for consumption it has a bloodlust <laughs> I don't know how many invasive species we could say that about. And I also don't know how they measured that. It's probably angry because no one wants to pronounce its name. True. But yeah, it just it just kills for funsies, apparently. Which is <laughs> might be the most invasive species we've ever covered. You will pay your respects or else. Or just, just uh, <laughs> they're just really having a bad day. Just every day is a bad day. Maybe it's mad that it's being called a shrimp because, like, you could say shrimp is like a de- derogatory term. So maybe it? it thinks like it's being bullied. Oh, okay. 
Like shrimp, like a short person, like me. All right. No, I was not aware that was a, a thing that people said. Yeah, well, it's a thing people said to me. Five foot three, guys. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> have been grown since I was 13. But yeah, so it kills indiscriminately. And just like the quagga muscle, it can tolerate a, re- a wide variety of environments and foods. And is also a hugely prolific breeder. It lays approximately 200 eggs per clutch. I mean, that's just an invasive species right there. And as Simona said, it has reached the UK and there are a lot of people who are worried that it will eventually reach the US, although I think it might have reached North America by now, again, because of trade, because uh, just like the quagga mussels, uh, a lot of these kind of aquatic species actually reach other regions through ballast water uh, of ships that are traveling. And the ballast water is like the water that helps keep its balance at the bottom, from what I remember of my my ship, my seafaring days. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be an episode in itself. I mean, to be fair, actually, there was a point in my archaeological career where I was really into ships and thought I was going to go in as like a ship expert. And... uh, then I realized it was like hard work, so I stopped. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't plain sailing. <laughs> and also that kind of invalidates, because you know the whole point I was making about how a lot of invertebrates are so incredibly specialized and niche. Not these mm-hmm. guys. No. And you have like most invertebrates, just like, la 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 la, I can give you like very specific information about the paleoclimate at the time. Like, because I liked this particular temperature and these particular locations and these particular foods. And then you have the quagga muscle and the killer shrimp. It was like, just doom everything. Just chill. You know, not a big deal. Could do whatever. Phony was just just chill. Like, the killer shrimp is anything but chill. Like, spiritually chill. And I was just really mad. I'm honestly the phrase indiscriminately killing uh, alongside the words killer shrimp has uh, haunted me for days now. Well, it's in the UK. It's probably good. I don't know. It's just, I was also thinking that too, because I love shrimp and all seafoods. Uh, uh, a, a killer shrimp edible? Is, is that what you're going? <laughs> I mean, anything can be edible if you put your mind to it. Like a killer shrimp cocktail. <laughs> that would be cool. Mm. Oh, now I want shrimp cocktail. <laughs> and I ate already, so this is clearly just something that's wrong with me. Yeah, it's wrong. The same thing that's wrong with me, Alex. Yeah, okay. That's fair. But yeah, I mean, I, I think these were really good case studies because it's just, again, same thing that is always happening. As we have trade, as we're moving here and there, we're always going to end up accidentally bringing these critters along specifically by sea it seems like and um i think that's a nice kind of bookend to end this episode what do you think citophilus granarius would like to thank you for having listened to the show (laughs) instead of sponsors can we just have uh, various (laughs) just like (laughs) Jeez. The, the new mascot of the podcast, just the avatar, is just a grain people. <laughs> so send in your suggestions to the show with whatever Roman senator name you'd like uh, Simona to read out, because she's the only one who's going to do any sort of dignity. We'll so, have an yeah. entire hour-long episode of just her reading out <laughs> names. You know, it would be great to actually hear Simona read Latin for like an hour. That would be great. I wouldn't understand it, but you know. Yeah, I think she could be like, like a very strange ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people will actually like pay for that. So maybe maybe keep that for your own side business. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. Reading scientific names. <laughs> oh, Simona's Romans. I love it. Yeah, that's it's going to be. But how can people get in contact with us, Alex? You can find us on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at ArcheologyFits. Simona has left the the social media plane goodbye as she has become enlightened. And, <laughs> and But if you have anything you want to say, Simona, I will gladly let her know. I also do check the ArcheoAnimals Twitter, so... 
That is true. Yes, I always forget that you have access to that sometimes. Uh, if you if you do have any hate mail, send it to Tristan. Send it to Tristan. <laughs> Hashtag send it to Tristan. As always, like and subscribe. Tell your friends about us. And uh, I don't know what else do we say at the end of these. Sidophilus Grenadius. Sidophilus Grenadius. No. Sidophilus Grenadius. And they find out they've been pronouncing it wrong the entire time. <laughs> Mistopheles. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So.